This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and it's sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. Join us for the next hour as I chat with people from that wonderful world of books. Michelle Alvey is a writer, editor, online creative writing teacher and a powerhouse dynamo behind the National Flash Fiction Day and the international literary journal Flash Frontier, an adventure in short fiction. She's recently released her collection of flash fiction, The Other Side of Better. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, I thought we'd actually start off because you know, I've mentioned this word flash fiction, which is a form of short fiction. So I was just wondering if first off you could explain to our listeners, you know, the differences between short stories, flash fiction, and even micro fiction. Mm, yes. Um, well, the first starting point is about the length and the kind of story you're telling in a very small space. So a short story can be somewhere like 2,000 to 5,000 or even 10,000 words. Flash fiction comes in at under 1,000. 1,000 is really the top end of it. So it's really a matter of telling a story in a compressed space And the shorter you get, strangely enough, the harder it is because you have to really figure out what to leave out. A typical flash fiction story might be around 500 words, even 700 words. And then the shorter ones down to 400, 300, or even 200 are really compressed. So they're often a scene that is very well uh, illustrated by both what's said and what's not said, but there has to be something that's still a narrative arc. So it can't just be a scene between two people. There has to be something that builds tension and layering and suspense and then maybe resolution and maybe not. Um, The very short form, the micro, is usually around 100 words, and that's just a much tighter space in which to write a small story. So it's really just incremental in terms of the size and then what you do with it is really up to you because there's a lot of room for experimenting in that form. Because you often see in competitions and things like that, they will stipulate stipulate a, a word limit that you have to work within, you know, whether it's 100 words or 300 words. Um, so is that part of that whole competition side of things? Yeah, that's exactly right. The competitions always have the word limit as sort of the first thing because that is the guiding framework. But within that framework, you can really experiment and do whatever you want. So a 300-word story, which is what we use for the National Flash Fiction Day competition, might actually feel quite long if it's, for example, broken up into many small sections with a lot of breathing space in between. And depending on how you read that, you know, that could be quite a long read uh, in terms of the time it takes, whereas something that's written breathlessly with very little punctuation all in one go that might read much faster. So it's really quite fun to see what people will do with something like 300 words. But that word count is always what's what's conditioned at the top of any competition or a writing journal. At Flash Frontier, uh, the limit is usually 250 words, so it's even smaller. Because I know um, I had the pleasure of being attending the National Flash Fiction Day finals event that we had yeah. here in Dunedin, which was an amazing evening. And yeah, the variety... And like you say, in the differences in pace and story that people were able to come up with within that, what you think would be a very confined space. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the stories that we heard on that night, you're right, they really did demonstrate it. Um, Susan Wardell's piece, when she read it, and that was the winning story this year, which happened to be in Dunedin, um, it feels like a much longer story when you when you contemplate everything that's going on in that piece of writing. Mm. And I mean, I've had a little experience with micro, micro fiction. My only moment of glory when I've ever won anything was an ODT six word 
Oh, fantastic. Do you remember your story? I did. It was head babies drove me to crime. Ah, that's really great. Being a given crime your, fiction writer. Exactly. Given your history, that's really great. Really <laughs> funny. Now, um, we've talked about flash fiction being short, but the other thing that strikes me, particularly when reading your collection, The Other Side of Better, is that there's almost an intersection between prose and poetry with flash fiction. Is it a kind of a hybrid I think it is. I think the fact that it has that confining space leads people to uh, explore at the edges, at the boundaries. So people who really love the small form are always looking at how to experiment more, how to push it a little bit further. And in this collection, it's actually interesting. We deliberately didn't write on the cover. You know, often there will be a subheader that says short stories mm -hmm. or you know, a collection of poetry. or, And in this case, we decided not to call it anything because it's really hard to label because it is in that hybrid category where it's situated with obviously some stories that are very small stories. Some of them are more poetic in terms of their voice. In this collection, there's also an overarching character who appears throughout the collection. So she has her own storyline, which carries all the way through, which makes it, it has some novelistic elements, even in the small stories. So that kind of... Playing with what you can do, even in a collection, and then how the stories also interact with each other. Sometimes they're in conversation with each other. Sometimes one story on down the line might be responding to something a little bit earlier on that was referenced. So that's how a collection in this hybrid form sort of comes together. And yeah, it was hard for me to call it just flash fiction because it's not purely flash fiction. It's kind of wide ranging in a, way. <laughs> a little bit yeah a little bit outside the bounds perhaps and that actually preempts the question I was going to ask later in the mm. interview but mm. um, you've brought it up now is you know how do you know as the writer that you have enough material for a collection and is it a I'm going to write a collection herefore I shall write or gosh I've got all this stuff and I'm not quite sure how it links up how can I turn it into something how was that for you Oh yeah that's a really good question and for me it actually varies from collection to collection so and the way that I'm I'm thinking about the pieces I'm writing whether they fit together or not um and I imagine for every writer it's a little bit different but in some cases, I'll simply write a small story because it comes to me and I decide to write it down and then I might just tuck it away and see where it fits or if it is a single standing thing on its own. Um, with my first book, The Ever Rumble, I sat down to write them as a set. So I wrote the initial set, which it is a set of interlinking small stories and it turns out to be a novel. Um, so I wrote all of those in one go and then I spent another year and a half moving them around, editing them, writing more to sort of fill in gaps. Um, you know, pulling and changing in all directions to make it fit as a whole. So that I really intended as a set. This book, I had written a lot of flash fictions and a lot of different kind of prose poetry pieces, some of which were published and some of which I had never done anything with. And I thought, yeah, it they did sort of, they all resonate. You know, there's certain themes that go across the pages. And I started to look at them you know, which I could pull together. And of course, not everything I've written is in this. It's like, you know, a certain set of stories worked really well. So I pulled them together and then all the stuff that didn't fit, that's waiting to do something else with it. But um, yeah, and then I had that that crazy character, the fuddy-duddy editor who came to life over 10 years ago now. And she's always been sort of sitting with me in the back of my mind. And as I started to think about the arcs and the themes that were in these stories and how I could weave them together, uh, she just kept coming back at me and kept appearing. And I thought, oh, no, she actually fits in here really well. <laughs> She's a delight. <laughs> She's a bit of fun, isn't she? Yeah, I enjoy her. <laughs> <laughs> and an interesting thing with this collection, um, as you mentioned, you know, some was like flash fiction, some was more like poetry for you, was um, in the places where actually physically on the page, you use the form of the words and white space, as mm. it were. Is that something that you take into consideration when you are writing a story or does it just happen? How's that process work? Oh, uh, it comes, you know, it comes as you're writing, um, particularly with a collection. It comes as you're seeing how the stories are on the page together and then where one story might fit, you know, next to another one and how it might echo the the rhythms or the sounds or even the shape of another one. Mm. So a little bit of both. I mean, certain stories, when I wrote them, I knew how they were going to sit on the page. 
uh, if they're a list or if they're a, if they have particular fragments that have to go in separated spaces with white all around them. Uh, those have always sat that way. And then sometimes I'm, you know, moved things around uh, in the collection to make them have a certain feel that I was looking for on a particular page. Which is interesting because it, it means that as well as um, the stories for the person reading through from front to end, I mean, you know, a collection, you can just dive in and out. But if you read from front to finish, you get this physical form as well. Um, I was particularly, the, the sled is a short story, mm. which is a, a beautiful spherical shape. And I was quite intrigued with that one because um, did the words come first or the shape? <laughs> uh, the words. That actually, that story, the kind of idea of it came first. And then the way I was going to write it came. And then the idea of having a part in the middle that was sort of this fragmented memory. Because a lot of my stories are playing with that idea of memory and the imperfection of it and the way we blur those lines as we're retelling and retelling and retelling. And, uh, yeah, that was that was particularly fun to work with, those, the way those words kept recurring uh, in that narrative, yeah. <laughs> and you, you said that the short form actually can take quite a long time to, to write. How much crafting for you goes into each piece of fiction? Well, there's there's quite a lot, I'd say. I mean, it's like writing poetry. Sometimes it flows right out, and pretty much what you start with is what you end up with, with maybe some line-ending tweaking or some punctuation changes. Um, So that's quite often the case. But I think the because I'm an editor anyway, I tend to have that editing eye. and, And what I really like, even in my own work, is walking away from a piece and letting it sit sometimes for a very long time, because when you come back back to it, you inevitably find something that you didn't see the first time, even if you wrote it. So I tend to do that with other things I'm reading, other, you know, clients' work, or if I'm I'm editing a manuscript, or uh, when I'm teaching, I like to sort of read something, walk away, and come back to it. And I do that with my own work quite a bit, too, which means I really do think taking your time is helpful. And you don't think you sometimes run risk of overthinking everything? No, I, <laughs> that's funny. No, I, I, I don't think I overthink. Um, no, that time is just sort of a way to let it simmer a bit. Um, you definitely don't want to over edit something. It's a really good question because giving it time doesn't mean editing. Every time you come back to it, you edit and edit and edit. It doesn't mean you always are changing something. It means you're just letting the voice or the language or um, the rhythm kind of come up to the surface every time you're reading it with a different feeling or a different eye. But yeah, that is a really good question because I think you can work so hard at something and be sort of, um, you know, fixated on the kind of mechanics of it that you then you might lose the gentle poetry of it. Yeah. yeah lose the feels. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and there is quite a bit of um, no, technical requirements for a short fiction form, you know, what would your fuddy-duddy editor describe <laughs> as, as, you know, what, and, or you as a judge of flash mm. fiction, be looking for technically in a piece? Oh, yeah, I was just asked that recently because I'm judging a couple competitions coming up, actually. Um, I think the thing that I really love is when the very first thing that strikes you is the creativity on the page, you know, the idea that the, the mind and sort of the heart are both really at work in a piece of writing. Um, And that is evident. If you find a piece that is, for example, coming back to your earlier question, if it's over-edited, if it's over-structured, if it's sort of overly ponderous in the methodology, that becomes really clear. So something that has a kind of a sense of freedom on the page and that creative spirit that is sort of drifting throughout, I, I think that's really exciting to see. Certainly something that is experimental and trying something new. You know, if there are flaws with commas, that doesn't really matter, even though, I, of course, I love grammar and punctuation and all that. But those kinds of things matter far less in a competition than, you know, what's really at the heart of the piece and how much the writer is pushing to explore. Because, I mean, that's what this form is all about. The hybrid small fiction form is all about seeing what you can do with it, what's coming next. And is that what drew you, because you write a lot of flash Mm. fiction yourself, you know, what drew you to this particular form of writing and creative expression? Yeah, definitely. The idea of the creativity that I can apply on just one page of writing is really exciting. Um, But I also really started writing it in earnest when I spent a year 
thinking that what I wanted to do was set a goal for myself where I would write a story a week for one year, which I did. And that was really fun because what I found was to write a story a week, I, I had to have that kind of focus. So that compressed story really appealed. I mean, I, I didn't need to write 10,000 words a, a week, but what I needed to write was something that was fully realized. So I ended up writing flash fictions for a year. And then I uh, launched a site with a friend of mine, a high school friend who's also a writing instructor, in fact. And that ended up being this huge online flash fiction community um, where people wrote a story a week for a year. And it was a whole community of writers. So that was a lot of fun. And it, it, it involved both the creative inspiration, but also that discipline, that discipline of writing every week and keeping a focus and keep coming back to things you've learned in previous weeks, applying them, reworking them, all of that. So Which I think is really fun. Keeping that momentum, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And which segues quite nicely to, and you teach now mm. um, in creative writing online. And mm. I, I think recall reading on your website that, you know, one of the things is just this idea of 250 words a week. And yeah. just keeping that going, you know. Um, tell us a bit more about your your teaching. Yeah, and actually, it, it's really fun because it came out of that original project from ten years back, and uh, I've been wanting to do it for a while, but I was traveling a lot, so I really need to be in a place where I can be connected all the time, where I can be reading and talking to students. So I set up that course. Uh, when I arrived in Dunedin and when I settled here. And um, it's a course where the students write every week and the idea, and then they get feedback from me every week. And it's pretty relentless. <laughs> and some of the students in there, they've actually made the analogy. It's a little bit like going to the gym and exercising because you're constantly exercising and you feel like sometimes you don't want to do it, but when you get through it, you feel really good about what you did <laughs> because it's inspiring. And one story begets another, begets another. And, you know, it's a kind of a cycle that you get into. And it helps build ideas. It helps build structure. It helps build the discipline. I mean, the writing muscle can be trained and can be worked on. And I really like it that one of my students came up with that idea because I think it really fits. And and because it's a class and we meet in Zoom because we started in 2020, as soon as I started the class in January, soon after that, we went into lockdown. So it became an online Zoom session kind of a class. And um, it's kept going because uh, it's really nice for people to meet in that regular way as a group and they share work with each other. And uh, we're constantly looking at, you know, what you can do in 250 words in a week. And not everybody in there is writing flash fiction. That's also interesting. Mm -hmm. Some are writing poetry, some are writing novels or memoir, but they bring every week just a small segment that we really dig into and analyze. So you're kind of like their personal trainer. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's so. like having a personal trainer, <laughs> accountability. <laughs> oh, you're actually right. I never thought of that. Yeah, maybe we all need one. I don't know. But. Speaking of you know, using that, keeping using that metaphor with muscle yeah. building. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely. I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. There's something to it. Just that kind of encouragement and. Uh, it's funny also, too, because just recently I was talking to someone about the fuddy-duddy editor, and I think she's a little bit like that, too. She's the person that, you know, you hear inside your head who sometimes is really discouraging. She's the one who's going to call you on your nonsense. She's going to say, that doesn't work at all. Don't even go there. Don't even try that. And that's that side, that voice inside that sometimes holds us back, but also has some reasonable reasons to doubt what you're doing. Uh, but she's also the one who encourages you. You know, she's the one who says, yeah push it harder, go further, and see what you can do. And so she's that voice that kind of, I think, talks to me, but also maybe talks to everybody. Everybody has that voice. Yes. Or different voices. Yes. <laughs> Multiple voices. Depending on the frame of mind yeah. at the time. Yeah. Now, she is this beautiful theme that threads its way through it, but has an entire chapter devoted to herself in the middle, which is great. Um but in the other side of better, you do explore um, a lot of ground. You know, is this one of the advantages of short fiction, um, or is it a, a curse in a way as well? Because you know, what do you choose from when you've got so many ideas? Yeah, I think you have to. I mean, you can tell you can tell when somebody has just pulled together uh, a lot of pieces that don't necessarily fit. Um, but if you're trying to choose them according to themes and story arcs and connections and that sort of thing, then you can start to see, even in your own writing, what, ki what kinds of things fit together. Um, that's one of the things I really like with anthology editing or when I work as an editor on someone else's collections, because a lot of that conversation is around what fits, what doesn't fit. 
And sometimes we'll look at, let's say, a poetry collection. You know, you'll look at the pieces that actually all stream together. Sometimes you'll rearrange them and you'll realize that this set that's later actually could come earlier and establish a different kind of a voice or approach or rhythm. So I really like that idea that, you know, a certain set has to fit together. Um, even if it is a little bit all over the place, there have to be reasons for it. And um, that's a big challenge. It's a big challenge in any kind of an anthology or collection. So that must have been um, one of the exciting things then about building your works together to, to find that narrative arc, to find that journey that you take yeah, people it, through. Yeah, it is true. It, and it's really fun in that way. And um, and that's also funny too, and you probably get this as well. Sometimes the pieces that you think you know, might not fit as well, other people will read them and they'll be some of their favorites. Mm. So when I was going through drafts of this and working with people who were reading it, you know, I ended up with a lot of feedback about which pieces work and which pieces don't work or where they have to go. And, you know, that's that kind of external eye that really helps with your own work as well. Mm. So um, just to finish up, then, you know, what's um, the one key bit of advice you give to someone who is thinking about writing flash fiction? Oh, one key bit of advice. That's really tricky. Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I like mean mm, questions. Mm. <laughs> I think um, sit down and start to write and see where it takes you and see if you can actually, you know, start with a page, I would say, if you're really trying to write a compressed piece and see where you go in a page. And once you get that page and you have some kind of narrative arc, cut it in half. <laughs> see what happens. It's a really hard thing to do. Or if you really want to try a hand and you're short on time, take something you've already written, anything nonfiction, fiction, anything, and try to trim it by 50%. You'll be amazed at what you can do and what comes out on the other side. I think I might have to try that. <laughs> it's really fun. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on the show today and talking about um, flash fiction and your collection, The Other Side of Better. Um, it's been great talking. Thank you so much, Vanda. I loved it. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a short music break. We'll be back soon. Do, 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 do.
The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Ooh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the fabulous University Bookshop. Bronwyn Wiley-Gibb from the University Bookshop is a regular feature on the show where she comes in and we just talk books because she's an avid book reader and book lover and surprisingly so am I. So um, welcome Bronwyn back to the show. Kia ora. Well, let's kick straight off then. What have you been reading? Um, well, I've been reading several things because I, I've got different books in different rooms of the house. Um, I've been reading a book called Why She Writes, mm. which is a book about oh, 18th, 19th and 20th century writers. And it's by the two women, um, Lauren Burke and Hannah K. Chapman, um, who started a podcast that they they used to meet up and have drink and that's all, and they used to argue about who was the best, the Brontes or Jane Austen. And they started a podcast called Bonnets at Dawn, which continued <laughs> that argument. And then it's it's morphed into a a podcast about women writers in the um, 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. And so they have all sorts of people come on and talk about all these amazing women writers who often were writing at a time when it was considered not respectable to be writing. Um, they, their work was ignored. Their work was published and ignored. Um, or their work was published and derided often by, by some of the, the um, great male writers who you know took that space as their own. Um, and this, this book is really interesting because – there's, it's it's a combination of of text and comics, graphic novels mm. con- content, and it's been drawn by um, a woman called Kaylee Bates, and um, you have a page about about the writer and why she, why she's important and where she sort of fits in to to the canon and who she influenced and who was influenced by her, um, and um, like um, Radcliffe, who um, in Northanger Abbey, Jane Austen talks about um, her heroine adoring the books by, by Radcliffe. And, um, and so you have this page of information about them. And then there's um, a few pages done, done as a comic strip, which is fantastic, of the, 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 the moment that, that made whatever they did happen. So, so with Mary Shelley, it's the moment of sitting on the shores of a lake and um, – Italy and there's a storm outside and somebody suggests let's all write um, scary ghost stories and she spends and they, the, the, the men come up with Shelley and Byron and Polidori come up with various things that they're going to write about and she doesn't for a few days and then she astounds them with Frankenstein um, and yeah it, it's just it's just really interesting and I'm reading about lots of women that I didn't know about and some some that I had heard of um, but yeah it, it, it's it's a good read and an interesting way to sort of look into that and, and think yeah these these women also help create the, the western canon as well. I can see that's going to be another one added to my to order list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's good that they, um, there, are, there are writers in there that aren't so well known and that yes. you weren't even you know, aware of. Yeah, and they were, a lot of them were published. It's mm. surprising how many were published. Um, uh, and But they never sort of hit the heights of, of Austen or, or Bronte perhaps, mm. and so they're, they're not well known. And they weren't. And because because the content of what they were writing about was seen as perhaps more melodramatic than what the than what Austen and Bronte, well, certainly what Austen was writing about, but and, and more melodramatic and somehow not as good literarily as perhaps um, the Brontes. Because I mean, the Brontes, let's be honest, were m- melodramatic. You know, Jane Eyre <laughs> yeah. and, and and Wuthering Heights are, are completely over the top. Um, yeah, it's it's I I'm finding it fascinating um, and a really interesting read, and I've also been reading the book Letters to Commando by Edmund de Waal, which is the sequel. So it was not a sequel; it, it's a companion to his book Here with the Amber Eyes, mm. which 
everybody who reads it falls in love with. Um, and Letters to Commando is about another Jewish dynastic family who they this this family they moved from um, Constantinople to um, France when Napoleon declared that yes um, Jewish people could become um, uh, citizens of France and they moved to France and they lived in Paris down the road from the Afruzis, who are Edmund de Waal's family, um, and they lived in an enormous, beautiful house, which is still a museum, um, the Musée de Commando. Um, and, oh, I have actually heard of that yeah, museum. Yeah, exactly, and it's still mm, the there. The little connections go, thunk, thunk. Yeah, and it's, and it's there. And Edmund de Waal sat down, and basically he, he spent some time at the, at the museum. He's the first – Edmund – is the first living artist. He's a, he's a um, world-renowned um, potter, um, and he is the first living artist to have an exhibition at the Commando Museum. And because the Commando Museum is left exactly as though people have walked out of it. So it's a bit like Dunedin's Ulverston. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing to go there. Um, and he, he sat and has written letters to the Baron, who set up the museum, and he died in 1935. And these letters are, and the the, the museum is um, in honour for the Baron's son, who was who was an aviator during the First World War and died. Um, and the letters are about collecting and melancholy and family and what objects mean. And then, of course, the letters become. Edmund is coldly angry, like he is with um, when he talks in, in here with the Amber Eyes about what happened to his his Jewish family um, during the Second World War. Um, about the Baron died in 1935. They opened this amazing museum, and in 1936, the government still had to pass really restrictive laws about um, what Jews could and couldn't do and what they could and couldn't own. And then during um, the Vichy government, um, the Baron's family were all transported to Drancy and then from there they were taken to um, Auschwitz and murdered. And he's really interesting. Uh, Edmund is about about belonging and place and it's a it's a smaller book than the um, than the Hair with the Amber Eyes and the, the people might find the, the structure a bit strange, this sort of writing letters to to this imaginary person, wondering what they would have thought, mm. um, considering all these things. But it, it was, it was just beautiful. It, it's 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 amazing. It's fantastic. I'm so pleased to have read it. And um, I mean, here with Amber Eyes is one of my favourite books of all time. And this is a great. That's a great follow. A great follow up mm. to it, and kind of a neighbour to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so those 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 are two non fiction mm-hmm. books, aren't they? So, yes. um, I'll, I'll talk a wee bit about one of the yeah. non fiction books that I'll be reading. Yes. I'm a, I'm a bit like you. I have to have more than one book yeah. on the go, and there's usually a fiction and a non fiction. There might yeah. be some essays as well or yes. short stories. Um, so I've just recently finished reading um, Written in Bone by Dame Sue Black. Oh, uh, now she is a um, British forensic anthropologist, yes. and um, this is the, the second book that she's written, and. I love she's a, a wonderful writer. She puts things across in such an accessible way. So in this book she um goes through the the parts of the body and but also links up those with cases that she's mm-hmm. come across um in in the course of her career. So you get this incredible combination of you know fascinating facts on how the body develops right from you know when a fetus and how it functions and why it functions and it does all these mm-hmm. things. But then she ties in these Stories about the cases and how you know, very human they are, and, yes. and quite um, the emotion of real cases and how things affect real people and how they are forensic anthropologists when they're only dealing with bone. Yeah, how they can um, use their skills to identify you know, people and yes. remains or, or why they died and how they died. So it's a, I found it a wonderful combination of, of the story and then of the, the science, which I sort of you know, geeked out on happily, and, and, and fun and intriguing things about the body and body parts that you didn't know. Oh, it's really interesting. The, the books by people who work in those forensic sciences are really popular, mm-hmm. and they're very interesting to read because it's not – the fast entertainment of a movie or a television show or, or a, a crime novel. And and it really is hard work and it's mm-hmm. one step after another and you don't – they don't usually have amazing light bulb moments and 
oh yes, this is this is what's happening. You know, it's it's having to do particular experiments. It's having to do particular tests. It, it, it's putting all these little bits together of the jigsaw, and it really the, when they're well written, they give you an amazing idea about about how hard people have worked and the knowledge that is required. Yeah. It, it's it doesn't tie up neatly in an hour on TV. <laughs> no, um, you know, and the reality, you know, sometimes they just can't identify yes. things. You yes, know, they're, they're thwarted and the frustrations. Yes, um, but then they also you know show how the immense effect it has on a family when their loved one is yes. identified and, and they can important. solve yeah. those problems for yeah. them. Yeah, I, I, that, that sounds like an interesting one. I might have to <laughs> borrow it from you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have been reading some fiction. Mm. Um, I've been reading The Author's Cut, which is the collection of Owen Marshall's short stories that's about ah. to come out. It is fantastic, and it includes... Um, Coming Home in the Dark, which has been called the scariest New Zealand short story piece of writing ever. But it, it is, that's saying something. <laughs> it, is, it is quite amazing. I, I won't say too much, but it's about a family out in central Otago. The kids are being sort of shown dad's old sort of stomping ground. It's beautiful, uh, and they meet some people. And... Um, he he he's a master of the short story and um you're reading it and things happen just a sentence in the middle of a of a um of a paragraph and i actually i was reading it and i and i was two two sentences on i thought what 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 <laughs> wait <laughs> what? Did, did, did really did that what and I had to go back and re- and reread because these devastating things happen and you don't know why things are happening and it it is it is remarkable it's the most amazing thing I haven't stopped thinking about it since I read it the other stories of course are fantastic as well um, the cut co- the cover of the book has um, a person on it they've ma- they've made a film of coming home in the dark um, mm. and. It's about to be released, and I'm really, I, I, I don't know if uh, I'm, I'm fascinated and, and want to see it. Um, yeah, I don't do scary films. No, and it's <laughs> not stories, but I'm going to have to and read it's that. Not, and it's not scary ghosts or bumps in the night, or, or, or it's just scary because people are people, and sometimes they do awful things. And and sometimes, as you say, there aren't explanations. There are no answers. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I think the film um, sounds like it's going to be amazing. And um, I think that uh, I, I read an, uh, an interview, and they talked to Owen Marshall about it, and he he wasn't sure quite how anybody could make a film mm. of it, quite how what you would do. So I think it would be fascinating, and especially set in that beautiful landscape that we all know. And love up there, so so yeah. That's the that's the fiction I've been indulging in. Yeah, well, it's mm. telling if you know. To, to me, the mark of a really true, amazing story is if you are still dwelling on it. Yeah, absolutely. Days later, especially when you've been reading other things. Yeah, in the, the yeah. interim. And, and I have to be really careful because I want to tell people about it and why it is so startling. And, and basically, without spoilers, <laughs> without spoilers, and 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 sort of saying, look, you have to read it, and then we'll talk about it. Um, yeah, but sounds like I'm going to have to read it so we can talk about it. Yeah, exactly. I think that would be very good. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, mm. I've got some fiction that I'm about to launch into for a book mm. that's going to be coming out in September, which is going to be really, really interesting. Um, so um, William McElmany's very famed Scottish author who wrote the Laidlaw um, mm. series, and he um, died back in 2015, and he left behind um, half a manuscript of mm. Laidlaw's first cases. So it's almost like a prequel right. to it. And as this has happened with a, a number of um, authors who have unfortunately passed away, is that um, their estate or their family or their publishers um, invite someone mm-hmm. to, to complete that book, mm. which I think you know, must be a terrifying prospect mm-hmm. for an author 
to to have to try and okay stay true to the spirit mm. of um, a fellow author yes. and yet you know st- and carry on that voice that they use and everything like that. You still have your twist on it. They would have known each other as well yes. because you know Scottish crime is a small, is a <laughs> small and, 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 well, and well and well known <laughs> um, group. Yeah, yeah. So um, so Ian Rankin um, has completed this book. So it's called The Dark Remains. So mm-hmm. I'm very much looking forward to um, to reading that. I've got the, the, the cover here, which is mm-hmm. nice and embossed. And um, and, and you know, having reading um, McElvaney's Laid Law now and just sort of like see yes. how that goes. Because, you know, Stella Duffy did the similar thing with a Nio Marsh yes. book and there have been a number of writers who've had that. It's interesting because I, I saw one of the publishing reps the other day and I was buying for books for the shop for October. And one of the books that I was buying is the last book by Camilleri, who writes the Montalbano oh. series, which is the crime series um, with the detective Montalbano, which is set in um, Sicily. And he and um, it feels like Camilleri's been around for and being been quite old for a number of years. And what he did was he wrote the last book in the series because the, in this in the book I'm not giving away anything here. Um, he makes it that nobody would ever be able to resurrect the Montalbano character, and he wrote it and he lodged it with his lawyers some years ago. And so it's and so Camilleri died three or four years ago, mm. and the, the the last book is now coming out in October. So I'm I can't wait to read it and see what he does and and how 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 he's rounded it out how 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 it all happens and <laughs> and what happens. Um, yeah, it's it's. Spectacular, brilliant. Uh, um, and I'm interested that he cho- he didn't want anybody else mm. writing his character. Um, so I, I it's I quite think, a conundrum, isn't it? For, yes, for yeah, mm. yeah. So so he's taken care of it himself, and he and he thought about it early, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Um, I've got coming up on my reading pile the new book, the new crime novel by Ersa Sigurdardotter, who <laughs> who is Icelandic, um, and it's called The Doll. And um, it's got quite a scary cover, a creepy cover. Um, And it's about a woman and her daughter, and they're on a fishing trip. And one of the things they bring up in the net um, is a doll that has obviously been – a plastic doll that's obviously been floating around in the sea for ages. And it's just in a terrible state. And she wants to throw it back, but her young daughter wants it, so they decide to keep it and – um, that evening after the fishing trip, the mother posts a picture of it on social media. And the next morning, she's found dead and the doll has disappeared. Ooh. And so the, <laughs> so, and so this, and so the story t- takes up several years later with, um, a couple of, um, Ersa's, um, uh, police detectives, um, one of whom, well, there's there's the detective who is the policeman and then there's the other, um, person who, Works for the social department, social welfare department, for want of another word, in Iceland, and she looks after young children. So I suspect that's there's a connection there with the child in some way, and um, they are trying to figure out um, about some bones that have been found on the seafloor, mm. and it obviously all ties in with the doll and the water and and. I don't know. I I, I really like Ursa Sigurdar daughter's work. I, yeah. I like I like reading it because you there's the there's the crime and it's the puzzle and it's interesting, like the Camilleri. And then there's amazing things about the culture mm. of this place that you you know here in New Zealand. It's either about Sicily or it's about Iceland, and it's about the food that people are eating and the the um the the way that um the land looks and and yeah, it's amazing. I I I was watching um, the series Trapped that's on free t- uh, TVNZ on demand, mm. and it's set in Iceland, and it's a crime series as well. And I watched the first series, which is set in Icelandic winter. I watched it in the summer here, and I was curled up inside with several scarves on, and I had the heat <laughs> pump on, 
because I was getting cold watching Just it, and, at and it. that's and that's one of the wonderful things about reading mm. books set in those other countries. There's, yeah. When they're well done, there's a whole lot of other information. Yeah, yeah. It gives you that real sense of place and yeah, and how yeah. how those elements affect people. Yeah, mm. and the other thing I'm looking forward to reading is the Mad Woman's Ball by Victoria Mass, and I think it's M A S, and I think you say it Mass. I'm not sure how you say it. She's French, and it was a bestseller in France. And it's set in 1885, um, and it's set at the Salpetier, um Asylum in Paris, which is really famous, and um, women were incarcerated there, sometimes because they were mad and, and having um, quite violent um, mental illness problems and things, but often because they were inconvenient to their family in some way. So, and, Had a mind and, of their own. And... Um, <laughs> Charcot, the great um, hypnotist and, and doctor who, who liked to use hypnotism, um, he he worked there. And, of course, and the gentry could come and watch his work on, on these women. It was, you know, come and, come and see the Public mad people. Public spectacle. Come yeah. see, oh, my gosh. And, and every year they did have a ball um, to which the, 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 the patients came, but also um, – the society came, um, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to reading it and and sort of seeing what happens. And because um, it looks like, from just my reading of the blurb, it looks like the it's about a couple of the women who were one of them is ill, but both of them are there because they are inconvenient to their families in some way, and they've been put there um, for. Um, purposes of other people and and I, I'm looking forward to reading it and mostly because I only picked it up because the cover is spectacular it, it's got this amazing image of, of women in red gowns on it and the beautiful, beautiful um, gold sort of gilt sparkly stuff on oh. it. And, and it's a hardback. And I just thought, oh, I just need to look at this. I'm not going to judge you on that because I am yeah. such a sucker for a cover that oh, just yeah. that draws you in. Mm, mm, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but it certainly attracts your attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What else have you been reading? Um, well, I've another book that I've got lined up that I just purchased the other day was um, Project Hail Mary. Oh, oh yes, I, Andy I, Weir. I made you, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I talked that one up. Yeah, <laughs> so that was Andy amazing. Weir, um, Andy Weir was the author of The Martian, which of yes. course was you know a, a fantastic book, and mm. also became very prominent with the movie starring Matt Damon. So this is the follow up book book to that. And it's funny, isn't it? it, it it's clever. I, I liked how. Um, it, the the man wakes up and he and he doesn't know where he is or what he's woken up from, but he looks around the room that he's in and he observes different things, and he's figuring out that he he's a, he figures out he's a scientist and that he's on this ship that and that he's been asleep. He's obviously been in some and it's a computer looking after him and it has it has articulated hands for want of a better word that that have been feeding him and adjusting what's been keeping him alive and things and that he he starts to remember what what he's doing on this ship why he's been sent away from earth to do this and what's going to happen next and that he's the only person alive on the ship and he's going to have to do the thing he he's the hail mary project that's been sent out from earth to try and save everybody back on earth and i really like it because it's not deeply serious and we must <laughs> he, he 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 reacts like any of us would react freaks he, out. he freaks out he swears a bit he make he he sort of yeah he 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 is funny mm. and and is trying to sort of be smart about about the situation he's in i i thought it was really yeah. clever and i was he creates a remarkable situation and um i'm not going to say what 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 that is um because people have to read it um and I'm not somebody who reads sci-fi a lot, um, but this was fantastic, mm. and I may have cried a little bit <laughs> <laughs> because, because yeah, of 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 how it works. Mm. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Yes. It's, it's the ultimate lockdown novel, basically. Yes. Yeah. Oh well, I'm, I'm I'm very much looking forward to wading my way through that. Mm. So, is there anything any new books coming in on the horizon that um, uh, look like they're going to be interesting? Um, Yes, um, I. 
want to read Radical Act of Free Magic by H.G. Perry, the New Zealand oh, writer. Yes, yes. She's based in, in um, Wellington. She came to the festival this year. Um, and she wrote The Declaration of the Rights of Magicians. Um, and she also wrote um, The Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heep, both of which I really liked. And The Radical Act of Free Magic is a continuation from um, The Declaration of the Rights of Magicians. And they're set in the world... They're, alter- they're an alternative history, um, and they're set during the French Revolution and that time um, with Pitt and Wilberforce, the great um, abolitionist campaigner in in Britain, and also during the um, the um, slave revolt in Haiti, um, and. They're remarkable. First of all, she knows so much about the history of that of that time, and and basically, there are there there are magicians. People have have these magical abilities, and it's not it's it's sort of sensible magic, if that makes sense. <laughs> people can do things, and one of the things that's happened in 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 France and in, in part of this is that um, Robespierre is is one of these magicians, and what he has been able to do is he's he's Somebody is using him as a puppet. Some some entity is using him as a puppet and has allowed him to um, resurrect dead bodies, which means that they have been able to equip a French army of dead bodies to go out and take on the rest of Europe. So, I, I, radical act of free magic. I I don't know what happens next. Um, uh, uh, the the writing is fantastic. Sounds intriguing. And, and it's one. It's it's that it's that sort of really interesting literary writing where you're asked to believe just one thing that isn't true, and that you just believe it, and everything else falls into pieces. Yeah. So yeah, fantastic. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Brom, for coming in today and talking about books. We could just talk about books for yeah. all hour. We'll probably continue talking about books after the, yeah. after the interview as well. Um, it's been great speaking as always, and I feel a mission down to the university bookshop to go and buy some more books. Yeah. going to be on my horizon very shortly. Well, in the next few months, the stuff is coming in for Christmas, and there's some amazing, amazing stuff. And um, yeah, and you know, come find us at our new little home yes. um, in the HD Skinner Annex, and then you'll see across the road our big building is covered in scaffolding at the moment. Um, and we hope to be back there early next year. Yep, fantastic. Thanks, Bronwyn. Bye. That is our show for this month. So thank you for listening in, and thank you to my guests, Michelle Alvey, who was talking about her new collection, The Other Side of Better, and Bronwyn Wiley Gibb, who was talking about well, lots of fabulous books she's been reading. Join us again next month for another dive into that wonderful world of books. But until then, enjoy lots of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.